I'm to study Jonah chapter 1 today so you can keep that open uh, and our theme today is rebellion, rebellion. Imagine you sat down to write your autobiography, what would you be tempted to leave in? What would you be tempted to leave out? What would be the things that you would think, well that's worth a good 50 pages because I look pretty good in this story at this particular part of my life, handled that situation very well. What would you be tempted to give maybe a paragraph to at most because it would be too embarrassing to go into more detail? I think all of us surely would have that temptation to focus on the things that make us look good, to minimise the things that would make us look bad. Well today and next week, God willing, we're going to study a very different autobiography. It's not someone's list of their 10 greatest achievements or a story that in any way shows us how impressive someone is. In fact, it's mainly a book about someone who made serious mistakes. The book of Jonah is almost certainly an autobiography, or at the very least, a biography written by a close friend of Jonah. It's not just a story about a big fish. It's a story written under the guidance and grace of the Holy Spirit to teach us that even when we make serious mistakes, God can still forgive us. God is still willing to use us to accomplish his purposes in this world. And so the big idea of our sermon this morning is that God deals with our sinful rebellion by his sovereign grace. God deals with our sinful rebellion by his sovereign grace. To be a rebel is to fight against the way things are. Uh, Boys and girls, maybe some of you like the, the Star Wars films, the classic, original, best Star Wars films, Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia, they, they're rebels. They, they don't conform to the way the evil empire wants them to live. And so they fight against it. They do everything in their power to resist it. And since about the mid-20th century, or maybe even going back further than that, much of pop culture has been about idolizing rebels. People who don't conform to the status quo, whether it be music artists or film stars or whoever. Someone who doesn't just live the way everyone else lives, but by the way they dress or the way they act or the beliefs that they hold. They're rebels. Some rebels are just different. They're not, they're not engaging in any explicit sinful activity any more than the rest of us, but they just don't quite fit into society's categories and stereotypes, and so they're seen as a rebel. But the Bible tells us that all of us at heart are rebels in some form. We are rebels against the God who has made us. We're rebels in a cause that is not admirable or praiseworthy in any way, but is wicked and unjustified. And Jonah teaches us here in this first chapter that our God deals with our sinful rebellion with his sovereign grace. Let's notice first of all today the word Jonah received. The word Jonah received. The book of Jonah begins with God speaking. And it's important to notice that God and Jonah are the two characters of this book. And God, of course, and his words and his actions are uh, the, most re- the, most, uh, the most important, the most, uh, the most relevant, the, the ones that we need to take most notice of in this book. Look at the message God gives to Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, 
for their evil has come up before me. The word of the Lord came. These are commands that God gives to Jonah friends. Verse 2, three commands. Arise, go, call out. God is not here giving suggestions or opening discussions. He is commanding Jonah to go now and to preach in Nineveh. Notice first of all, friends, this word that Jonah received was a simple word. Arise, go, call out. Almost, what, two syllable words at most, if not one syllable words, most of them. Not big, long, hard words. Nothing complicated about this. Jonah wouldn't have had to get get together with the school of the prophets as they were in those days and consult for their opinion on this. The command is simple. Arise. Get get up from where you are. Go somewhere else. Go to Nineveh. Start walking or taking a camel or a donkey or whatever it may have been. The 600 miles or closer uh, to the capital of Assyria. Call out. Preach. Proclaim. Give them my message. Simple. A simple word. And yet it was also a demanding word. Some English translations leave out the word arise in verse 2. I don't know why they do that. It's an important word. God is telling Jonah that he has a specific task to carry out. He's going to have to get up and leave where he is to carry it out. He's not going to accomplish this task from God by staying still. Or just waiting for someone to come to him that he's supposed to preach to. He's going to have to exert himself. He's going to have to make effort. To take pains. And that sort of relates to the other thing that we can say about this word from the Lord to Jonah. That as far as Jonah was concerned, this was an unappealing word. It was an unappealing word. Arise, go to Nineveh. Historians and experts tell us that the city of Nineveh at this time would have been a beautiful place. A wealthy, modern, secure. It was located just opposite what is today the city of Mosul, which I think is in Iraq. Uh, Nineveh was a beautiful city. But Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And Assyria was the superpower nation in that day. And it was a pagan nation. The Assyrians were fearsome. When the Assyrians attacked their enemies, they didn't just fight the men on the battlefield. They would invade cities. They would attack the women as well. And if the women were pregnant or had a baby, they even attacked the babies, born or unborn. They didn't worship one god like Israel did. They worshipped many gods like all the other nations did. False gods and goddesses. There was no agreed moral standard in Assyria. They were amoral, horrible, horrendous people. And Jonah is an Israelite. A true blue, dyed in the wool Israelite. He is Israelite for starters. He is Israelite for main course. He is Israelite for dessert with some extra Israelite on the side. He is a patriotic, proud Israelite prophet. And the Israelites hated the Assyrians. These were pagan terrorists as far as Jonah and Israel was concerned. And here God has commanded Jonah not to go to Samaria, the capital of Israel. Not to go to the king of Israel. Not to go to the people of Israel who were in desperate need of revival. 
but to go to the Assyrians, to the Ninevites, murderers, rapists, dreadful sinners. This would be roughly the equivalent of telling a family terrorized during the troubles to move into the very neighborhood that planned the attacks that killed their loved ones and plant a church there. Jonah has absolutely no desire for his enemies to hear about the God of Israel or even to go anywhere near them. And so Jonah rebels against the word of God. And he didn't rebel out of fear. Sometimes people go through the book of Jonah, maybe they teach it or preach it or read it and, and, they, and they say, you know, Jonah didn't do this because he was too scared. And then you get to the end of the book and you realise you have to undo the things that you got wrong at the start of the book because chapter 4 verse 2 says, this is Jonah speaking, and this is after he does eventually go to Nineveh, he says, O Lord, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. In other words, Jonah rebelled against God's word because God's word was unappealing. If he goes and preaches in Nineveh, there's a chance that the Ninevites repent and receive God's grace and come to worship God because of his love towards them. And Jonah didn't want that. They don't deserve it. I'm not going. And so he rebelled against the word of the Lord. Wonder friends, is there some area of our lives where God's word to us is simple? We understand it perfectly well. We, we don't need to ask our pastor what the word means in the Hebrew or the Greek. We've heard it. We understand it. We know it. But it's a demanding word. And perhaps as well it's an unappealing word. It will involve putting a particular sin to death. Or it will involve opening our mouths and speaking to someone. Like it did for Jonah. About who God is or what we believe about him or... Why and how they need to be saved from their sins. Maybe for us it is we are fearful. Jonah perhaps wasn't fearful of the Ninevites. But maybe we're fearful. Fearful of losing someone's respect. Maybe losing a friendship. Maybe it's not that we don't like someone. It's that we do like them. And we're afraid of what they might think if we share our faith. Scratch a bit more at that fear though, friends, and in a sense it is a lack of love. Even if we would say we, we like that person. It's a lack of love ultimately that would stop us speaking because do we not love them enough to tell them they're in danger if they don't repent of their sin? Maybe you've heard of Penn and Teller or seen them on TV or online. A famous pair of American magicians or illusionists, depending on what word you want to use. Uh, and one of them, Penn Gillette, I don't know about the other one, but Penn Gillette is a, has been an outspoken atheist in the past. But he once said this in an, in an interview about Christianity. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. In other words, I don't respect people who don't proclaim their faith, who don't proclaim the gospel. He doesn't believe the gospel. But he says, I don't respect people who don't proclaim their faith. Don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think it's not really worth telling them because it would make it socially awkward, 
How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? He says. How much do you have to hate somebody? If I believed, he says, beyond the shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, there's a certain point where I would tackle you. And this is more important than that. That's an atheist who says that. He has more respect for the Christians who do proclaim their faith to him and do tell him, you're going to hell if you don't repent. He doesn't believe it. Let's pray that he does believe it someday. But he has more respect for the Christian who says that to him than the Christian who never bothers. Where in our lives might this be happening? Whether in the sphere of evangelism or somewhere else. God's word is simple. It's clear. It's come to us time and time again. But we're rebelling against it. Some sinful habit. Some idol we're centering our lives upon. Some situation we're refusing to address. Someone that we don't want to forgive. Someone that we don't want to ask forgiveness from. Some person to whom we need to go but don't. The word that Jonah received. Secondly, the way that Jonah rebelled. The way that Jonah rebelled. And Jonah exhibits at least two traits of rebels, of sinners against God, what we tend to do when we hear God's word and don't like it. Firstly, rebels run. Rebels run. Jonah didn't like what he was hearing from God, and so rather than stand and listen to it, he runs and hides from it. We read that he goes down to the port of Joppa, and he boards a ship heading for Tarshish. And often in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, someone who is going downwards is sinning. And they are heading for death. They're abandoning God's commands in their lives. We saw how Abraham went down to Egypt, you remember, early on in his walk with the Lord. And and the, the sin and the foolishness that came from that. Well, Jonah here went down to Joppa. Spoke to the travel agent. Bought his ticket for the ferry. Waved his passport. Went off to Tarshish. Tarshish was probably on the coast of Spain, what we would call modern day Spain. Thousands and thousands of miles west of Nineveh. Nineveh was 600 miles east of Israel. Jonah literally goes in the opposite direction of where he's been told to go. And he plans to go as far in that direction as he possibly can. So he's caught his boat, he's paid the fare, he's on board. Seems smart, seems simple, looks like it'll work out fine. And then as well as running, we see Jonah sleeping. Rebels not only run, rebels sleep. Soon after Jonah boards his boat to Spain, a storm brews up. And where's Jonah when the storm brews up? Verse 5, he's sleeping. The original language emphasizes that this was a very deep sleep. We would say that Jonah was snoring his head off. Wonder, boys and girls, anybody in your house snore? Jonah could have been snoring his head off here. He was that deep asleep, down in the boat. Notice, friends, that though he is in outright rebellion against God, Jonah was able to get a good night's sleep. Even when the storm started, he was sleeping through it. He was able to persuade himself that everything he was doing was fine, that somehow this was okay. That this was a good plan. 
Notice too, by the way, that when Jonah set out to rebel against God, things fell into place for him, at least at first. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He goes to Joppa. He wants to go to Tarshish. Lo and behold, there's a boat waiting to go to Tarshish when Jonah arrives in Joppa. And Jonah gets a good night's sleep thinking to himself, well, my plan's working out. Uh, God must have somehow got this wrong. Sure, here's a boat. I'm able to go where I want. Must not be God's will for me to go to Nineveh after all. Jonah was a rebel. No one had to teach him to be a rebel. No one had to teach you or I to be rebels. Parents have to work very, very hard to get our children to remember their manners, to say please and thank you, to share toys, to be kind. No one had to teach us to snatch or to steal or to hit or to lie. That's because all of those things are there by nature. In our rebellious, sinful nature. It's who we are. To sin is to run in the opposite direction from the word of God. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're at first going to suffer as a result. Commenting on the fact that Jonah found a ship going just where he wanted to go. Alistair Begg says, when we decide to run from God, Satan will always provide a means of conveyance. What he's getting at is, if you want to run away from God, Satan will help you do it. And you'll be able to find all sorts of reasons to say, well, this must be okay after all. This is the person, and there have been these people who say, I know God tells me not to commit adultery, but I'm in love with this person. And and sure, God put them in front of me. They're my neighbor, they're my colleague, they're whoever. I know that one interpretation of the Bible is that all sex outside of marriage is sinful, including homosexuality. But it's who I am. If God didn't want me to do it, why did he make me this way? God's word says not to steal, not to steal but, but everybody in my line of work steals. Just, just small stuff. When we want to run, we will always find an excuse to do it. We'll always find the means available to do it. We'll always find an answer for it. And we might even be able to get to sleep at night justifying it to ourselves. Rebellious men and women have been doing this since the very beginning. You remember Adam's reaction when he heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden? He ran with Eve and hid. And then when God confronted them, what did they do? They made excuses. They passed the blame. And yet God spoke directly to them and his word was simple and it was, and it was clear as it was to Jonah. And he speaks just as simply and clearly to us today, loved ones. He speaks directly to you young people about how you're to use your time and how you're to behave in relationships with people of the opposite sex. He speaks directly to us about how we're to treat the Lord's day, how we're to speak to one another, how we're to treat one another in our homes or elsewhere, how we're to deal with disappointments. Perhaps for you today, God has clearly said one thing and you're absolutely dead set on doing something else. And you think that if you just run hard enough and block out God's voice long enough, you'll be able to get away with it or live with it. Like Jonah, you want to suit yourself and do your own thing. Like Jonah, you're running. Boys and girls, the opportunity comes to take something that isn't yours in your house or somewhere away from your parents. God's word 
is clear to you about what you should do in that situation. Another voice is saying to you, just take it. Or maybe like Jonah, the opportunity will come to tell someone about Jesus Christ. And the temptation will be, friends, to make excuses not to bother. They wouldn't listen. It's not the right time. What will they think? Rebels can run. Rebels might even be able to sleep. But eventually rebels will be dealt with by God. Because God never allows us to carry on rebelling forever. And so we see thirdly and finally this morning. How God handled Jonah's rebellion. How God handled Jonah's rebellion. There's a huge amount of irony all the way through Jonah chapter 1. This rebel prophet so keen to get away from God. Look at the end of verse 3. He's on a ship. He's sailing for Tarshish. The end of verse 3 says, away from the presence of the Lord. It's not possible to sail away from the presence of the Lord. What did Psalm 139 say? A psalm that Jonah undoubtedly knew well. Where can I flee from your presence? There's, There's nowhere to go. It's like a child trying to run away from a parent when all the doors in the house are locked. There's nowhere to go. Where can I flee from your presence? How did God deal with Jonah's rebellion? Well, first of all, he exposed it. Look at the three little words that begin verse 4. But the Lord. But the Lord. Here comes God's intervention. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. The word hurled there in the ESV, it's a good translation. It's like we would uh, hurl a javelin or hurl a shot put at a target. It's saying here that this storm was hurled right onto Jonah's head. There was no storms forecast that day until Jonah got into the boat. It's a, it's a storm custom made for him. And it's such a bad storm that these experienced sailors who would have surely seen many days of choppy water if they were experienced sailors. Uh, nonetheless, it says they were absolutely terrified by this storm. Verse 10 says they were exceedingly afraid. Exceedingly afraid. God has stopped Jonah in his tracks. This is God saying to Jonah, it doesn't matter where you run. It doesn't matter what you plan. It doesn't matter how well you sleep. I am going to deal with your rebellion. And these these sailors are terrified by what they see. And the captain of the ship says to Jonah in verse 6, what do you mean you sleeper? And look what he says. Arise, call out to your God. Arise and call out. What had Jonah been commanded by God to do back in chapter 1 verse 2? Arise, call out to Nineveh. I wonder if even then through the the captain's choice of words was Jonah's conscience beginning to get pricked. That's what he was supposed to be doing. Arising and calling out. And it gets worse for him in verses 8 to 10. These men start quizzing Jonah. They ask him, a hundred questions at once. Where do you come from? What are you doing here? What's your job? Who on earth are you? And just can you, can you feel Jonah's embarrassment in verse 9? Look how, he, look how he responds in verse 9. I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Imagine having to say that to these pagan sailors who are now struggling for their lives because of this storm. I'm I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God who made everything, 
including the storm, and who has probably sent this storm right upon my head. Sorry about that. Not exactly 10 out of 10 for witnessing for Jonah. I think if I had been one of the sailors, I'd have been saying, well, it looks like you're doing a really good job of worshipping and serving your God who made the heavens and the seas. Looks like he is very happy with you right now. It says the sailors were exceedingly afraid. Jonah was probably exceedingly embarrassed. See, friends, sometimes it takes a storm to stop a rebel. Sometimes we may have to suffer as God exposes our sin to us because we've been running so long and so hard from his word. And that storm could take different forms. It it might be that we suffer what Jonah did, embarrassment even in front of unbelievers. It might be that there's some conversation that is forced upon us that has to be had. Whatever form the this, this storm may take, friends, it doesn't, a storm in life, I should also say, it doesn't always mean that we've sinned. I'm not saying the next time that we get sick or the next time we lose a loved one or, or a relationship ends or whatever it may be, it's not necessarily because we've sinned. It's not what I'm saying. But sometimes, friends, God will make things uncomfortable for us. He will hurl a storm at us, javelin-like, to stop us running away from him. And so God exposes Jonah's sin by sending this storm upon him and through the words of the sailors. But then God also deals with Jonah's rebellion by punishing it. Pagan sailors ask Jonah what they're supposed to do about this. Jonah finally starts thinking like an Israelite again. Israelites knew that sin needs to be punished. They knew that there was a place, there was that temple in Jerusalem, despite the divided nature of the kingdoms at that time. There was still a temple in Jerusalem in Jonah's day where sacrifice was to be offered for the forgiveness of sin, for the removal of God's wrath. So Jonah says, you need to throw me into the sea. I'm the cause of the problem. I am the target of God's anger. Offer me up to God and you will be saved. And the sailors are very reluctant to do this at first, but verse 13 says the storm only got worse and worse the more they tried to avoid dealing with Jonah. It's only when the sailors finally hurl Jonah into the sea that the storm subsides. As long as we put up with our sin, friends, as long as we refuse to deal with our sin, we are headed for shipwreck. God is a holy God. God has to deal with sin. God wouldn't be God if he let sin go unpunished. Justice must be done. So God exposes Jonah's rebellion and God punishes Jonah's rebellion. And yet, friends, God also shows incredible grace in spite of Jonah's rebellion. Does Jonah die in a horrible, watery grave? No. Chapter 1, verse 17. God appointed a fish. He appointed a fish at just the right time, in just the right place. A huge fish, doesn't say a whale, but a fish was there to swallow Jonah alive. Even after being such a stubborn, stupid, racist rebel, Jonah still wasn't beyond the reach of God's grace. And neither are these pagan sailors. Verse 16 tells us that these pagan sailors, in response to all of this, 
feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That sounds very much like these men genuinely began to worship the God of Jonah. They feared God, not just during the storm, but when they go back to dry land, they're not going to be able to offer too many sacrifices on the ship. We assume this has to be later on that they offered their sacrifices to God and made vows. Pagans, idol worshippers, ignorant men. See, friends, God didn't need Jonah to save sinners. God is sovereign in all his plans and purposes. But God chose to include Jonah in his saving of sinners. God offers us a part to play in his work. He's sovereign. He's in control. He knows those people who he will call to himself. But he includes us in his sovereign plans and purposes. It's like when a little child wants to see more of what mom or dad is doing in the kitchen or in the garden. Is that tiny little child really going to be a lot of help? Probably not. But they're invited along and they're given a task because their father or their mother delights in their company and their fellowship. God commands us because he loves us. God uses us to bring glory to himself and for our joy and blessing. And if you stop rebelling against his word and obey his word, sooner or later you will see that it is life-giving and it is good and it is better than whatever schemes or rebellions we had in mind. Jonah, even through such a dire, poor witness, was used by God to save the souls of these men, perhaps. And Jonah, if he was willing, could be used by God to save the souls of the men and women of Nineveh. Perhaps if we're willing and faithful and prayerful, he will involve us in his sovereign plan to save sinners, even through our witness here in Dremor next week. Maybe also in the weeks and months afterwards. And if you think I would be such a poor witness or I wouldn't know what to say, you can't do much worse than Jonah. Just lying sleeping in the ship, not even telling the pagans what was going on and having to sheepishly confess, I fear the God who made the heavens and the earth. You can't do much worse than that. And God still used that witness. So how much more might he use our witness? Just as we close today, I want to show you how Jesus is a better Jonah. Jonah slept on a boat because he was tired out from disobeying God. Jesus slept on a boat because he was tired out from obeying God. Jonah didn't care that the sinners in Nineveh were perishing. Jesus cared deeply about the sinners around him who were perishing. Jonah had to be hurled into the sea to calm the storm because he was a mere man. Jesus only had to speak to calm the storm because he is the God-man. Jonah offered himself up as a sacrifice to stop the storm of God's wrath for his own sin. Jesus offered himself up and went into the darkness of God's wrath on the cross for our sin. God appointed a fish to save Jonah. He's appointed Jesus to save us. We are rebels. We have run and we have slept in our sin. But because of the work of Jesus Christ, you can turn away from your rebellion and you can call out to the name of God 
and obey the word of God and start walking in the way that God's word commands. Amen.